there. I'm Asher Lehman, and welcome to the Spoon Rift Podcast. Here on the show, I talk about a lot. I just skim the surface of a giant ocean of information and capture the spoon drift. On today's episode, I'm going to talk about a book called Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Let's turn the page on the discussion. Fahrenheit 451 is a book written by Ray Bradbury. It was originally published in 1951, but it was also published a number of different times under different titles with different content. Because Bradbury, it, it started as a short story entitled The Pedestrian and then slowly evolved, um, I believe, another title that it was under. And keep in mind, this is different texts not entirely the same as Fahrenheit 451 that we're talking about here, but it was also called The Fireman. And then it eventually ended up as Fahrenheit 451. As far as the context goes, it was a book written in the 50s. As far as the plot is concerned, the book is about books. It's about a character named Guy Montag, who he serves as the protagonist of the story, and his profession, his job, is to be a fireman. And as a fireman in this book is not the role we typically think of today. Fireman that we know today puts out fires, but the firemen in Fahrenheit 451 start fires. Their task is to burn any house, belongings, or whatever happens to be in the house that has been reported to contain books. If someone spots a book or someone reading a book, or someone in possession of a book. They call the firemen, report the book sighting, and then the firemen go out to the house and burn it down. Instead of water coming out of the hoses, it's kerosene. And then they light the kerosene, sending the, the house and the books up in flames. And at one point in the book, the main character, Guy, Guy Montag, he actually reports to a house and the lady who's living in the house and in possession of the books refuses to leave. And so whenever Guy Montag sprays the kerosene, him and his crew spray kerosene all over the house and they light it, the lady refuses to leave. And so they actually burn the lady to death. She goes up in flames with the rest of her possessions. And that's that's his job in this world where books are frowned upon. In fact, they're they're more than frowned upon. They are no longer allowed. It's Guy Montag's responsibility to take care of that and burn them. Montag's uh, his view of books is, from what you can gather in the story, has been in question for a little bit before the beginning of the book. But the book begins when Montag is he encounters a lady by the name of Clarice McClellan, and she is someone who lives against the grain. I believe she said she was like 17 or so. And she watches, she walks along the streets, just looking at the trees, the surroundings, watching the birds. And she describes to Montag how she'll just spend evenings talking with her family. That's something that's unheard of, something that Montag certainly doesn't do. So she's kind of living her own independent life in a world where Independence and critical thinking are frowned upon, are not allowed. <laughs> and hearing what McClellan 
has to say about her life and her views on things. And she asks him this question, are you happy? And he's like, of course I'm happy. But then he's like, well, am I? And in this new new view, this new thought of things, it sparks this curiosity, I guess, within him. He's wondering, is he happy? Why is he burning these books? What's so bad about books? He's starting asking these dangerous questions. And they, these questions eventually materialize in him slowly collecting books. From what, we, from what you can gather in the storyline, he's kept a couple in his house for a while. But after meeting McClellan, and he goes to another house, I, I think it was the one where they ended up burning the lady before, he steals a book and he takes it back home. And then he also meets this, this uh, other gentleman named Faber, or Faber, yeah, Fab, Faber, Fab, Faber, named Faber. And he was a former professor who is out of a job now because teaching English, I presume he was an English professor, but he was taught literature. And given the climate in this story, he is no longer teaching. And so he serves as this sort of, um, not quite mentor, but getting there. He serves as this repository of information about books for Montag. He's got all these questions, and he actually and Montag goes to Faber, asking, you know, what, what what's the deal with books? Can you help me understand them? Can you help me learn to read these books and digest the material that's within them? And all this, it's important to understand the context of entertainment that's presented in Fahrenheit 451. the The major form of entertainment that seems to dominate the storyline is television. And Montag, the main character, his wife, she is someone who will sit in the, their living room and watch these massive TVs that are actually the walls of the room. They have three of them. She's wanting a fourth one to get a full surround television screen. But television is the dominant form of entertainment, it would seem, in the storyline. So they have these massive television screens that take, they, they physically are the walls. And she's constantly referring to the characters in the shows that she watches as her family. She's that invested in what they have to say, the storylines in the television shows that she watches. And back to the publishing date, this is around the 50s is when television is starting to take off. And I, and it would seem that Bradbury was seeing a shift in how people spent their time away from maybe spending time with their family, talking, reading books, and now all of a sudden starting to spend a lot of time watching video on a television. And that's what, why television kind of takes a center stage here. And we all know today that TV is, is definitely very prominent. There are probably few people who have not seen television screens, at least in the United States and many of the developed nations of the world. And television definitely has a major influence on people's thoughts, opinions, and entertainment. Another aspect of entertainment woven throughout the book is what is referred to as seashells, or basically an earbud that you put in your ear and you can stream audio, music, uh, talk shows, any of that sort of thing. And Montag's wife 
there. And with the television, when she's not watching TV, she always has their seashell in her ear. She's listening to people talk, listening to music, and consuming media through an audio form whenever the visual form isn't being watched. So there's this constant presence of entertainment in Montag's life, in his wife's life. And this this framing of entertainment is put in contrast to books. And I think that's it's one of the major plot elements that is woven throughout the, the story. There's also another element, um, almost like extreme sports. One aspect of the extreme sports that's presented is driving. People in this setting don't seem to drive very often to do things, or at least it's not really touched upon within the storyline. But when people drive, especially Montag's wife, she talks about this, they drive at extremely high speeds down presumably interstates that don't have speed limits, and they drive as fast as they possibly can, like on the edge of death, like on the edge of losing complete control of your car and flying off the road. They drive at these insane speeds at the edge of control in order to reach that edge of death and to be able to feel the adrenaline of a near-death experience. And that's it's like a distraction, a way to escape the other forms of entertainment they have. And it's presented as whenever anyone's like angry or upset, they do these extreme sports by going out on the road and driving at 150 miles an hour just to forget those things or let off steam. And it's all these things, it's never encouraged to think about things or to solve problems. It's more of just escaping those problems through TV, audio, or dangerous action. And the way the book kind of concludes is the fire department finds out that Montag has been collecting books over the course of a couple weeks, potentially months. They don't really care. They just care that he has them in the fire department reports to his house. And Montag is actually a part of the crew that reports to his house. They get the alarm. He's like, oh, we better go. At this point, he's already confronted the the fire chief about, you know, where did, why, why are we burning these books? That sort of thing. And the chief has kind of explained to them, and we'll talk a little bit about what the fire chief says a little bit later, because there's a bit of meaning in, in his words. But he's, so Montag has confronted the fire chief. He's kind of in the doghouse, so to speak, but they get a call and Montag is on that call and they show up at a house. And this is kind of like when everything kind of culminates into a big event. I, it's, it's kind of the climax. Yeah, I would, I would say this probably is the climax. And he's forced to burn down his own house. His wife had actually reported him. <laughs> yeah. And he does. Montag actually burns down his house. But then he he also <laughs> sets fire to the chief and runs away. And so the whole city is after Montag. He's got a couple of books in hand, and he's running away from the authorities. The police are after him. The firemen are after him. Everyone is after Montag, and it's broadcasted on television, and people are watching it. Reminds me a bit of uh, another police chase that was highly televised. 
a while back. Anyway, so he escapes. He actually manages to escape. He evades the police. I mean, he almost gets run over on one of those high-speed highways, which was kind of scary for him. And then he gets to this near-death experience, and he envisions... There's like this 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 moment in the book when Montag is envisioning whoever's in the car, and he's like picturing it just a bunch of kids driving around really fast, almost hitting him. And then the car pretty much does. He's like, he lies down in hopes of not getting run over. And I, I think the, the car hit his like fingertip or something. Just the corner of a tire ran over it. And then the car just swerves around him and keeps going. And he's just wondering, wow, whoever was in that car just about killed me. They would have gone on, not knowing the difference, because even as it was, the car didn't stop. They just kept roaring right along down the highway. And he's just thinking, these people would have just killed me and moved on. And the only reason they probably swerved was because he laid down and they, they knew that if they ran over a person like that going super fast, the car might have flipped or gone over. So it was more of an action of self-preservation on behalf of the driver than it was someone avoiding hitting someone on the road. And that was kind of enlightening for him. I mean, it was kind of like a, a, whoa, that's not cool moment. But he made it across the road, miraculously, and ended up meeting up with this group of people who liked books that would just wander from town to town. And they would collect books, as, as they would later describe him, by reading them, memorizing them, and sharing them with other people at, at later. So while they couldn't possess the physical books, because whenever they inevitably had to cross a town, they would be searched and then potentially face consequences for it. They wouldn't hold the physical books in, in order to avoid that sort of situation, but they would read them and memorize them and be able to tell them to other people. So that was their way of preserving the books when it wasn't socially acceptable to do so. So Montag meets up with them, and then there's a what seems to be a nuclear war that happens and the city that Montag was running away from goes up in smoke. End of bookends. So that's about the most, the, the, the gist of the plot line there. It's a bit scattered, but it's kind of the brief synopsis. Let's talk about the themes. I think that's where the real interesting discussion comes in. Uh, first, let's talk about tele, or technology. Television as I mentioned before, was important to the plot line of this book. There is an interesting quote by Faber. Uh, it was on page 80 of my edition. This I have the 60th anniversary edition of Fahrenheit 451, and so if you have that copy, it might it, it should be also on page 80. But this quote kind of sums up what Bradbury, I think, was trying to say about television. Here it is. Quote, The televisor is real. It is immediate. It has dimension. It tells you what to think and blasts it in. It must be right. It seems so right. It pushes you on so quickly to its own conclusions. Your mind doesn't even have time to protest. What nonsense. End quote. And that's from Faber. And that was from Faber's monologue on page 80 of Fahrenheit 451. So it's kind of like saying, and I, I know this is, I've noticed this phenomenon, especially when watching newscasts, when you get um, on news channels like uh, CNN, MSNBC, some of those news channels where they have constant news updates, where it's a couple anchors at a desk just talking about what's happening. It's, it's easy to just take it in and take what they're saying is real. And if you watch enough of that television, if you watch enough of shows like that, I feel like it's, it's easy 
to sort of internalize those anchors' views, their opinions, and their thoughts. And that, I mean, that extends to most television. TV is something easy to consume because you sit in front of a television and you watch, you listen, you take in the scenery. It feels very real. It's easy to get, as people describe it, and as I've described it as, it's easy to get lost in a television show. You watch one episode, if you're watching a streaming service, it immediately moves into the second episode. Third episode, it's easy to find yourself on a binge-watching marathon of a television show. Maybe you've even seen an entire series without even realizing it in a day. You've binge-watched an entire season of a TV show. It's easy to do. (laughs) But television is something so easy to watch. It's easy to not really challenge the views or opinions that are stated in television shows. And I think that's kind of the message that... Bradbury has about television in the book. Now, I might challenge that with saying the same sort of thing can be done with books. It's easy to just read a book and think what is said is true. But there was another point made at a later section of the book, almost right after that point when Favor was talking about the appeal of television. He addresses books and kind of the benefit of books over television. And Faber says, when talking about books, quote, you can shut them, say, hold on a moment, you play God to it. Then, end quote, a little while later, quote, books can be beaten down with reason, end quote. There, I think he's saying that books, they're not as easy to just sit down in front of and watch. You can sit down in front of a television show and watch it. If you fall asleep, you fall asleep. It's still coming at you. It doesn't require a lot of mental engagement to watch TV. Now, don't get me wrong. It's certainly possible to watch TV while mentally engaged, to think about it, to pause, to challenge what things are saying, to talk about things with other people. But it's also easy to just sit down, turn a TV on, and let it go. With a book, though, it does require a bit of a bit a higher degree of attention, in my opinion. I mean, any sort of reading material. It does require you to sit down, to, to start reading the words, processing them, and synthesizing the words and sentences into thoughts. It does, I, I think it's, it, ha- it requires a, a higher level of engagement than TV does, in, in my opinion. And I, I think that's kind of the message that Bradbury is saying here. He's pointing out how with a book, when you're reading it, you can stop, you can think about what's happening, and kind of challenge the ideas with reason. And there's, no, there's no saying you can't do that with TV, too. But I think the major point being made here is the, the level of engagement required with books versus television. Another, another major element of technology touched on in this book is audio. He's talking about the seashells or the earbuds that allow a user to consume a constant stream of vocal shows, of music, of commentary, you name it. It's in your ear. You're able to listen to audio all the time. When this book was published, that technology was pretty new, if even widespread at all. It was very new. Now, of course, me, I was reading about a seashell and I was like... (laughs) What? What is what is that? You mean you mean an earbud, right? 
Because in my mind, that sort of thing is normal. A lot of people own earbuds or have listened to their phone while walking down the street. They have earbuds in, listening to music, listening to radio podcasts. That sort of entertainment consumption is totally normal in my mind. It's nothing for me to walk down to the local grocery store and see someone with AirPods in their ears listening to music or talking on the phone. And so that that sort of technology, while I imagine when it was written in the book, was novel. It was something that a lot of people probably weren't familiar with. It was totally normal for me. The introduction of the book was written by Neil Gaiman. And in that introduction, he said it quite well, I think. <laughs> he pointed out how a young reader finding this book today, meaning the Fahrenheit 451, or the day after tomorrow, is going to have to imagine first a past and then a future that belongs to that past, end quote. And so that's kind of what I'm saying here. Back when it was written, this book was a future from that time, from the 1950s. And now we have to think about the book as a future book written in the 50s, as someone living and operating in the 2020s. And so that's why the the seashell, while maybe futuristic then, certainly isn't now. It's kind of interesting to think about like that. It's almost as if the wild imaginings of Ray Bradbury back in the 1950s have almost come to fruition, at least with respect to this, the uh, the ubiquity of earbuds. <laughs> and I would be, I would be cheating myself if I did not acknowledge the irony of me talking about this book to you through a podcast that you may be listening to through earbuds, which is, it's kind of amusing and a testament to the, to the reality of the situation here. Okay. So now we've, we've talked about television. We've talked about earbuds or what are called seashells in the context of the book. And now it's time to address the ultimate form of entertainment that's really the center of the entire book, books. Books allow for room to debate. We were talking about earlier how Montag confronted the fire chief in asking about why they started burning books, why books were no longer acceptable. And the fire chief, his name was Beatty, last name was Beatty, and that's what he was referred to as. He had this quote, it was on page 52, when he said this, quote, classics cut down to fit 15-minute radio shows, then cut again to fill a two-minute book column, winding up at last as a 10- or 12-line dictionary resume, end quote. And that was him talking about the the evolution or de-evolution or devolution of books. Now, you have long books, obviously, is what it starts as, and then it gets shortened down into summaries. And in today's modern time, you might look on the internet to find a summary of a book on a Wikipedia page or something. And then they're slowly cut down into just small I know I've seen like on BuzzFeed or on um, different websites like that Hamlet in 15 minutes or Hamlet in a very brief amount of time, especially when you're looking up help on 
books that you have to read for school and that sort of thing. You'll, you'll find short and dense material giving you the highlights, so to speak. And I'm, I've heard people ask for me, okay, just give me the highlights, you know, just the, the important parts, so to speak. And that's the, the fire chief is talking about the, the progress where people had the patience to read a book and then they didn't want to read the book, but they just kind of wanted to know what it was about. So then it got shortened down to brief summaries or synopsises about books. Synopses, synopsises, anyway. And then it got down to small newspaper columns. And then it was just a couple of sentences meant to really break it down really fast. And, and eventually people just all together and forgot about books. Why bother reading them? We'll just show them on TV. And that, I think, is the message there from Beatty, the, the fire chief, about why books, they have no purpose. Because in this world, they actually, they lost their meaning. The, the books that actually challenged people's thought and that might have been worth reading were no longer being produced. They were all the books from the past. Any new reading material didn't actually have any value. It didn't have any quality. And since I was talking about quality, we should transition away from what Beattie was talking about into one of Faber's monologues about what he thought the real value of books was. So Montag, he reached out to Faber. He, he was looking for answers, an explanation as to what books were, and he wanted help in learning how to read them and how to process them in a way that was valuable. And Faber had a lot to say <laughs> about what he thought books were and the value in the books. And I'm gonna to talk to you about what he was saying. Faber said that books had three good qualities and those three qualities were the three things missing in the books that were, if they were going to be, that would have been produced in the Fahrenheit 451 world. And the, the number one quality was um, quality. <laughs> so the books were actually missing quality themselves. And when defining quality, Faber said, quote, it has features, end quote, meaning the books. Okay, quote, you'd find life under the glass, streaming past an infinite profusion, end quote. And what that means is if you were to dig into a book, you would actually be able to read between the lines, so to speak. If you were to put it under a microscope, you would be able to see more than just the story that you were reading. You would see the messages that the author was trying to convey, the points they were trying to make, the details, like the, the intricacies in the character development. You would be able to see and pick up on all those tiny details, those interesting tidbits from the book if it had quality, and that was something lacking. And he also points out that that quality, or lack thereof, was the reason that books fell out of favor. He said, quote, So now do you see why books are hated and feared? They show the pores in the face of life, end quote. He's saying that books allowed people to think. It put the realities of life, or maybe the realities that people didn't want to think about of life, in sharp contrast with the storyline. It actually highlighted the things that people don't like to think about. It made people realize or consciously confront problems, ideas, people, opinions that were maybe less tasteful. And that's why people stopped liking them. They didn't want to think about 
bad stuff. This uh, goes into another topic that I've, I've had another podcast about, liking sad movies. I do. Other people don't. I think this is kind of, it's running along the same idea that I was kind of putting forth in, in, in my monologue on that subject. Just, it's, I don't like not watching a sad movie because it's sad. I think there's value in thinking about sad things. And here, this is kind of the same message that Ray Bradbury is saying. Now, quality two, or aspect two, since number one was quality. Faber identifies number two as time. Off hours to think. Time to think. And this, his, his further elaboration on this aspect was that quote we were talking about before, where Faber was saying, quote, You can shut them, meaning books. Say, hold on a moment, you can play God to it, end quote. And then a little further down, quote, books can be beaten down with reason, end quote. Faber is saying that by reading a book, you can stop reading it and think about it. Because, I mean, in all actuality, the ability to read an entire book in one sitting is rather difficult. So it's almost as if you're building in the ability to think about the content that you're reading into the very object itself because you're likely to read some, set it down, read some of it at a later time, you almost can't avoid the ability or at least the the freedom to think about what you're reading in a context larger than the book itself. So he says that is one very important aspect of books. And number three, the third aspect of books that he finds absolutely essential is, quote, the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two, end quote. So that is the ability to read a book, find all of those poignant statements, all those important ideas, those challenging concepts, those problematic events, to read through the lines, think about what the author is saying, and then take the time to really process it. If you can think about all those intricate details that the author weaves into the plotline, then you will be able to appreciate the value of the book itself. Those are the aspects in Faber's view of books that are of extreme importance. Now, Bradbury makes a point to say, through, through Faber, that this rejection of books on a grand scale in the Fahrenheit 451 setting didn't have to be done by government. There was no widespread censorship. There was no government crackdown, no propaganda discouraging books. It just was something that naturally happened. So this might be the result of a general fear held by Bradbury as to how technology like television or radio could take over one's mind and could lead to the demise of books. Now, fortunately, some 70 years in the future today, where television is widespread, earbuds are widespread, computers are everywhere. You can go on the internet, surf the web for hours on end, days on end. Some people do. <laughs> I'm probably one of them. I, I, I do. I spend a lot of time on a computer. 
But in a world where all those things are a reality, they're no longer just future things that could happen. They have happened. They are very much a big deal in modern society. Books still exist. Now, I'm someone, I read a lot. I also spend a lot of time on the computer. I, I do a lot of writing on the computer. I do a lot of audio processing on the computer. I do a lot of research on the computer. I do a lot of things behind the screen, probably more than I should, but I am a strong advocate of reading, and I am, that is probably my, my biggest hobby. I read a lot. I mean, I read Fahrenheit, 50, Fahrenheit 451 just now. Now, that's not everybody. Not everyone likes to read. And maybe, to some degree, the, the world that Bradbury was fearful of has, in a way, become real. But I don't think, I don't think that it has. I think in some aspects, yes, people do rely on television for entertainment. And maybe they don't, maybe people don't think, I mean, I say they, but I'm including myself in this. Maybe we don't think as critically about television shows, about movies as we do. And I'm, I know I'm guilty of watching a movie and not picking up on some underlying message that is supposedly involved. And then someone else says, oh, did you know this movie was about that? And I'm like, no, I just thought it was about this person doing this thing. And they're like, no, 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 this is a large scale commentary on such and such aspect of the world and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to rewatch this movie because I didn't know that. But I don't think that books are dead. I don't think that people don't appreciate a good book, the message that authors are reading. I mean, maybe the format has changed. I mean, people read books online. I don't think there's any difference between reading an ebook and reading a paper book. I think there's equal value in reading content on either medium. The medium doesn't change as long as as Faber said, the quality is there. They're, the books, I, I think, are still very much valued. People still write. People still read. And I guess we could extend this. this uh, let's, let's do that. Let's extend this, this argument to the internet. I mean, this is a question of books and the value that you can get from reading books. Uh, if, we, if we move to the internet, let's say reading articles online. I, as a content creator for the internet, I guess, as a podcaster, I do a lot of research on the internet and books as well, but the content that's produced for websites, I definitely have seen differences in quality in work that is published online. You do have to be careful about what you read and about what information you take is true. I mean, this is, this has always been true, has never gone away. There were always books that weren't worth reading, books that were worth reading, and books that you have to, I mean, it's always the responsibility of the reader, I think, to take the time and the effort to evaluate the quality of information that you're digesting, that you take in. So whenever you're reading internet articles, it is important to think about what sort of information that is. Okay, so we've said that. So thinking back to what the the fire chief was talking about, how books would be summarized, and then those summaries would end up into just a couple sentence bullets about highlights and that sort of thing. That is definitely something that is very prominent on the internet. 
There are lots of websites with articles like three steps to write a book, five easy steps to make dinner. There's a lot of the insert number here, number of steps to do insert complicated task here. A lot of um, sensational headlines that, again, have always been present, have always been a problem. If it wasn't on the internet, it was in the newspapers. Not in newspapers, it was in books. So I don't think the problems are new or are present only because the medium that they are on has changed. I think those have always been the problem. So it's more, in my opinion, less of the demise of books and rise of visual media and more of a shift and where the problems materialize. Is it a book that is worthless and not worth your time? Or is it a TV show? And it, unfortunately or fortunately, it is the responsibility of a reader to make that decision and to be able to think critically about the material that they consume. Do I think that television is of a lower quality than books? The short answer to that question is no, I don't think so. There's plenty of thought-provoking television shows out there, thought-provoking movies out there that you cannot just write it off as, as senseless media. I don't think that's true. What I would say is that, again, it falls on the viewer, the reader, the watcher to pick and choose what they watch, what they choose to spend their time doing. Some TV is great. If that's all you do, that's probably unhealthy. Books are great. If that's all you do, read books, that's probably unhealthy. And all, I think, Fahrenheit 451, I would say it was worth the read. I enjoyed it, I will say. I fell asleep during some of it. I <laughs> I read in an environment that probably helped out. It was very warm. I was reading outside, and that probably didn't help matters. And some of the storyline did kind of put me to sleep. But... <laughs> It was worth reading, I think. I, I, In the grand scheme of things, I enjoyed the book. Now, one thing I, I, I'd like to point out that this is the first time that I've read it, and I didn't read it because I had to. I know a lot of people did read this because they had to in English class, probably in high school. A lot of schools use this in their classroom curriculum. I was not one of those students. I didn't have to read this book for school. And I think I have a greater appreciation of the book because of that fact. Now, I will say, when you're reading a book in school, you do get, you you are forced into the discussion of what we're talking about, the, the sort of analysis of the text that maybe you wouldn't do when you're reading something for pleasure. And I can't take credit for every aspect of this analysis because at the back of my edition of Fahrenheit 451, there were a number of critical essays that were talking about the messages and so that definitely played into this conversation. And that's something that does that is carried out whenever you read things in school. But I will say, since I read this outside of school, I think I have a greater appreciation of it. I read it on my own accord, my own motivation. I styled this book on a bookshelf, and I'm like, I want to read it. So I did. And I like that I was able to do that, and I think that added to my enjoyment of the book. And that's my discussion of the book Fahrenheit 451, by Ray Bradbury. Now for the moment of music. This week, I'm looking forward to the release of the self-titled album from The Band Camino, called The Band Camino, because that is how self-titled albums work. <laughs> uh, 
uh, some of the um, so now there are I have songs that I've been listening to that I that I like and here they are the first is from these heights by Jelani Aria English alternative Cologne by Bibadoobie English indie Holiday by KSI English alternative Jokes on You I Don't Want to by Charlie Adams English alternative Low by Chet Faker English alt rock Grow by Willow featuring Avril Lavigne and Travis Barker English alternative and someone mentioned to me the other day that Travis Barker is on a lot of things and it's true he's featured on a lot of different things and in case you didn't know he's a drummer and music producer and he was I think he got to start in Blink 182 another band that I like and so yeah he does he does a lot of drums for a lot of different artists on a lot of different songs all the time so he seems to be a very um busy person i mean so is a lot of other musicians but anyway he just has a wide scope i guess next song is can you handle my love by walk the moon english alt pop emo lullaby by charlie adams english sad girl pop patience by ksi featuring youngblood and polo g english pop blame myself by elenium featuring tori kelly english dance feel good by chet faker english alternative black hole by griff English Alternative, Brave Soul by Elenium featuring Emma Grace, English Dance, The Darkness by Scary Pool Party, English Alternative, Remember Cloverland by Charlie Adams, English Alternative, Bunny is a Writer by Caroline Palachek, English Alt Pop, By Now by Verite, English Pop, <laughs> Verite, it reminds me, um, I had a math teacher once, uh, and we would have to do these proofs i guess so no more like derivations well it was like prove that this could be simplified to this and that those were some of the math problems that we had and when we would get to the end and the teacher whenever he, he taught this he would get to the end and he would put a big check mark and then he would write veritas and he would say it with enthusiasm and it was great so now every time i like i do a math proof and i get to the end and it it looks like i want it to look it's like Veritas, <laughs> and that's what made me think of it. And I think it comes from a Latin word uh, meaning truth. Anyway, Bother With Me by Charlie Adams, Sad Girl Pop, <laughs> English. You and Me by Elenium featuring Sasha Alex Sloan, English Dance. Best Thing by Johnny, English Indie. Shade of Yellow by Griff, English Alternative. And yeah, Griff's got two songs on this. I recently found griff and i like a lot of her music she's got some really good tunes she's got some good uh <clears throat> vibes some real bops oh oh man okay need to not do that coma slash smoke by Haliker, english indie and finally it pains me to say this a little bit irl by fickle friends and in case you didn't know irl stands for indigo reality <laughs> lace and that's an english soda pop song and there's my music picks for this week and so i have added myself to the long list 
of media that talks about Fahrenheit 451, whether it be book reviews, newspapers, radio shows, and podcasts. I am now a part of that list. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Spoon Drift. It means a lot that you're here with me. If you want to listen to the music that I talked about on the show, you can check out my Spotify profile, The Spoon Drift Podcast, and find The Spoon Drift Season 2, Episode 29 Playlist. For more episodes of The Spoon Drift, you can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spinnaker Radio's home on the web, radio.unfspinnaker.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date on everything to do with The Spoon Drift, you can follow me on Twitter at SpoonDriftPod. That's at SpoonDriftPod. Or you can find me on Instagram at SpoonDriftPodcast. That's SpoonDriftPodcast. And I will leave you with a quote from the book that I really like. And I think it applies, it's just generally a good quote for life, I think. And here it is before I get too far off. Don't ask for guarantees and don't look to be saved by any one thing, person, machine, or library. Do your own bit of saving and if you drown, at least you die knowing you're headed for shore. Ray Bradbury. And with that, I hope to talk to you next week.